focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have our usual Monday reporters in Kim Min-ji and Chang Hana. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening to you guys, as always, as we have been uh, for some quite time now. Kick things off with uh, issues on the Korean Peninsula. I uh, certainly have seen a lot of activity, especially from North Korea. North Korea, once again, this time conducting a strategic missile test, uh, firing several submarine-launched cruise missiles off its eastern coast. Minji, you're going to start us off. Uh, tell us about the latest North Korean provocation. Sure. So the firing of submarine-launched cruise missile by North Korea over the weekend marks a significant development in its military capabilities. Its leader, Kim Jong-un, personally oversaw the launch, emphasizing the urgency of the Navy's nuclear armament. The Nodong Shinmun, a state-run newspaper, reported that these missiles, known as Bruhasar 3-31, were launched from a submarine. Now, interestingly, this comes just four days after North Korea conducted the first test of this cruise missile. There are concerns as the missile is believed to be nuclear capable. Now, Kim Jong-un's emphasis on the Navy's nuclear armaments highlights its importance as a national agenda. The Nodong Shimun reported flight times of 7,421 and 7,445 seconds, indicating that the two missiles were fired. However, additional details such as flight distances were not disclosed. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff detected several cruise missiles over waters near North Korea's eastern port city of Shimpo, where the regime's largest submarine base is located. Now, it's worth noting that the last time North Korea fired its submarine-launched cruise missile near Shimpo was in March last year. Seoul's military is closely coordinating with the U.S. to monitor any signs of further provocations from the north. A U.S. State Department spokesperson urged Pyongyang to refrain from further threatening activities and called on the regime to engage in dialogue. Now, once again, uh, we talked about the Purhas Hire 331 uh, being nuclear capable in that if North Korea is able to miniaturize their nuclear warhead, it will be able to be placed onto this cruise missile. And a cruise missile, of course, flying in a lower altitude than compared to the ballistic missile would be harder to detect. And I've mentioned also in a wartime situation, it's more likely that they use cruise missiles rather than ballistic missiles. And if you look at maybe the distance that cruise missiles uh, uh, fly, uh, it's sort of targeted towards South Korea. And it's a message towards South Korea. But now, fortunately, North Korea has not yet been able to miniaturize their nuclear warhead. And uh, many uh, North Korean experts are saying that their next sort of move, or I guess uh, next nuclear test, would not happen unless they're able to fully miniaturize their nuclear warhead. We also know that uh, Russia is able to miniaturize their nuclear warhead. And so, uh, which is why any kind of collaboration militarily between North Korea and Russia uh, is a cause for concern as well. We did also get some assessment from the Joint Chiefs of Staff in regards to the recent launch uh, of the cruise missiles by North Korea. Can you tell us what they said? Sure. So when you look at the photos released by the North Korean media, the Pukasai 331, which was launched the previous day, can be seen rising at an angle from the sea, enveloped in a plume of smoke. However, the launch platform used for this missile remains subject of analysis and speculation. The South Korean and U.S. intelligence agencies are currently scrutinizing 
analyzing the images to determine whether the missile was fired from a submarine or a barge, which are typically used for missile testing. Joint Chiefs of Staff stated that the launch platform is under analysis right now, and it could have been a test launch from a launcher or from a real submarine, but we will have to wait until the analysis is complete for a clear answer. There's also consideration that North Korea's claimed flight time might be exaggerated. The Joint Chiefs of Staff also mentioned that the same missile could exhibit significant technological improvements or advancements depending on the launch platform, whether from land or sea. However, the sudden shift in the launch platform raises questions about the potential for exaggeration given the short period of transition from land to sea. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, uh, considering, uh, you know, I guess it wouldn't really matter uh, how long is traveled, right? I mean, because you're still looking at a relatively uh, close distance in between, let's say, the Shimpo uh, shipyards over to, let's say, Seoul, uh, although it would be foolish for North Korea to launch any sort of nuclear weapons towards Seoul because of the proximity towards North Korea. Uh, but uh, the submarine launch missiles are a big concern because, again, it, it's it's almost impossible to detect uh, where they're shooting from because you're not able to detect any of these submarines underwater is what it is and which is why North Korea has been testing a lot of submarine ballistic missiles in the past as well and one of the other things that they've been doing is that they're able to showcase that they're able to show uh, fire ballistic missiles in like let's say reservoirs and dams and so forth and so they're really mixing it up trying to kind of keep uh, South Korea off guards here uh, Russia in the meantime strongly criticizing the South Korean government over defense minister shim won media interview the russian government warning that if south korea takes quote-unquote reckless actions in supporting ukraine beyond the current humanitarian aid to military assistance the bilateral relationship between seoul and moscow could completely collapse hannah let's get more on this sure now russian foreign ministry spokesperson maria zakharova warned the south korean government against reckless behavior that could lead to a complete breakdown of the once friendly relationship she took issue with defense minister shin won shik's recent media interviews in which he stated that he believes full support for ukraine is the way to go as a member of the free world based on his uh, personal opinion however he added that he supports the government's policy of limiting humanitarian and financial assistance. Russia said it was closely following the South Korean government's position by monitoring the press, stressing that the country's defense chief had mentioned the need for direct military assistance to Ukraine. She said it's clear that the U.S. is behind South Korea's comments and that the U.S. is aiming to get South Korea involved in the war in Ukraine and that the defense minister's comments reveal that. In addition, she went on to say that allegations of arms deals between between North Korea and Russia are nothing more than unfounded accusations. And after the U.S., South Korea, and Japan recently slammed North Korea's illegal arms trade with Russia, it appears that the Kremlin has seized on Shin's comments to fire back. Now, suspicions of an arms deal between North Korea and Russia have been growing, with a series of weapons fragments found in Ukraine that appear to be North Korean-made despite Russian's denials. Now, again, I mean, uh, one thing is for sure that uh, South Korea has for the longest time uh, not agreed to supply lethal weapons to Ukraine. Uh, this even despite the fact that uh, the United States and Ukraine have been urging South Korea to give them the assistance. But there has been indirect assistance, right, which Russia has kind of 
I, I criticize, but they really can't because, you know, once you sell the weapons to, let's say, countries like Poland or Canada, uh, it's really out of their hands. And what Poland and Canada does with these ammunition, I mean, it's 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 them, right? But uh, I think Russia in the past have said that South Korea is indirectly giving them military assistance. But, I mean, that's... That's that. Uh, also, in a recent high-level meetings held in Bangkok between January 26th and 27th, uh, just over the weekend, the U.S. expressing concerns over North Korea's recent provocations and its military cooperation, this time with China. Uh, U.S. urging Beijing to leverage its influence on Pyongyang. But uh, here's the latest on the diplomatic talks on this. Minji, you have the coverage. Sure. So during a 12-hour meeting between the White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Bangkok, discussions revolved around North Korea and its recent actions. A senior U.S. government official stated that the U.S. is deeply concerned about North Korea's recent weapons test, including the fire first test launch of a new strategic cruise missile and the testing of an underwater nuclear weapons system. The official also mentioned the escalation of U.S.-Russia relations and expressed concern on Kim Jong-un's intentions. The term increased ties refers to North Korea's supply of ballistic missiles and ammunition to Russia, along with high-level diplomatic visits between the two nations. Now, the U.S. has directly raised these concerns with China, given its influence over North Korea. The senior U.S. official emphasized the importance of continued dialogue between both nations. And additionally, Chinese Vice Foreign Minister Sun Weidong has been dispatched to North Korea and a telephone consultation between the U.S. representative and Sun is expected. The U.S. hopes that China will use its influence to bring North Korea back to the path of denuclearization. National Security Advisor Sullivan also urged China to use its influence over Iran to ease tensions in the Middle East as well. China, as Iran's largest trading partner, does hold a significant inf economic influence over the region. Now, while China has publicly called for easing tensions in the Middle East, it remains to be seen how diplomatic pressure will be applied to address issues such as the Houthi rebels threatening international logistics. This development comes as the Houthi these continued to attack merchant ships in the Red Sea since November last year. Now, China's economic ties with Iran have been a key factor in these diplomatic discussions. It's kind of interesting how the U.S. is using the whole uh, Iran and China are major trading partners, being that Iran is the biggest trading partner for China in the Middle East. Uh, yet, if you look at the entire country, the U.S. is the biggest trading partner with China. But it doesn't seem like there's any sort of, uh, I guess, correlation to bringing about peace talks, right? Uh, the Chinese local government decided to remove the memorial stone for Korean victims of Japan's wartime forced labor, this from a public park. Hannah, it uh, really is upsetting when we mm -hmm. see reports of this. Uh, let's get the details of that. Sure. Now, Japanese media reported earlier this week that the authorities of Kuma Prefecture plan to remove the memorial stone from a public part in the city of Takasaki. Now, the memorial stone was erected in 2024 by a civic group in Japan to promote the public's understanding of the shared past history from Japan's colonial rule of the Korean Peninsula between 1910 and 1945 and the friendship between 
between the two neighbors. In 2014, Gunma Prefecture refused to extend the state approval for the establishment of the stone, claiming a civic activist made inappropriate remarks about the forced labor victims during a 2012 memorial event. Now, Japan's top court ruled in favor of the Kuma authorities in 2022, but the civic group has filed separate suits seeking to block the removal. Now, on the front wall of the stone, the phrase remembrance, reflection, and friendship is engraved in Korean, Japanese, and English. Now, the forced labor issue has been a major thorn in bilateral relations between Korea and Japan, and many Koreans were forced to work in Japanese factories under harsh conditions during the colonial years. And following the court's ruling, Kunma Prefecture will begin the demolition of the memorial stone today and finish it by the 11th of next month. Gumba Prefecture informed the civil society organization that it plans to charge about 30 million yen for the demolition after it is completed through administrative enforcement. And the day before the demolition began, 150 people, including civil society organizations, gathered at the site to lay a wreath in protest of the demolition. Now, around the site, after um, about 10 people who appeared to be members of a far-right group caused ruckus demanding the demolition. Now, Kuma Prefecture Governor Ichita Yamamoto claimed that the, pur- the purpose was to promote friendship between Japan and South Korea, but the civil society group has repeatedly violated the law and its very existence has become a subject of political debate. Just kind of uh, wanted to know why it caused so much to demolish something this small because it's not a major, major memorial mm-hmm. uh, for our listeners out there. $270 million U.S. dollars. Uh, interesting stuff. There's uh, I don't know if anyone knows the change.org website. Uh, this is where you put uh, these petitions in place. Uh, there is, wow, uh, a petition started by a German national uh, that says, stop mm-hmm. the removal of the memorial for Korean workers in Kunma, Japan. Uh, the goal is 500. There's about uh, 221 signatures signed uh 214 people just signed this week uh, this uh, petition itself is only two days old here uh but uh, it really is unfortunate that uh, again despite all the evidence towards forced labor coming in uh that they continue to deny these historical facts uh we're going to move on and talk about domestic politics this time uh, we've certainly have been covering this particular issue for uh the entire week last week we have sort of seen a rift uh, between the South Korean president and Yoon sung yeol and also the PPP's interim chief, uh, Han Dong-hoon. Well, there was uh, a meeting between the two uh, during a uh, fire site, a fire accident site in uh, Sacheon, uh in the uh, southwest of uh, Seoul. But uh, in order to sort of, I guess, quell this rift between the two even more, uh, they held a luncheon at the Yongsan uh, presidential office today emphasizing the need for increased efforts to enhance the lives of the people. Let's get the latest on this, Minji. Sure. So President Yoon Seok-yeol engaged in a two-hour, 40-minute discussion with PPP interim re- chief Han Dong-un and PPP floor leader Yoon Jae-ok during a luncheon and tea chat. Secret- Senior Secretary for Public Relations Lee Do-un provided insights into the meeting, highlighting that the discussions covered various civil issues with a focus on housing and transportation matters, including the undergrounding of railways. In particular, 
the trio agreed to continue negotiations in the National Assembly regarding the expansion of the Serious Accident Punishment Act. Now, the aim is to ensure that small businesses do not face undue difficulties. President Yoon Chief Han and Yi also expressed concerns over recent attacks on politicians, with President Yoon instructing relevant ministries to take prompt measures. The luncheon was attended by other key members of the presidential staff, including Pres- Presidential Chief of Staff Yi Guan Seop, Senior Presidential Secretary for Political Affairs Han Oh Seop, and Senior Secretary for Public Relations Yi Do Eun. Uh, More on domestic politics. Again, uh, things are heating up as we are inching closer and closer to the April 10th general elections. Uh, Some of the things that we've talked about are these new parties that have been forming. Now, big question over whether or not former DP leader and former uh, Prime Minister Lee Nagyan was going to be forming a new party. It did happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, we talked about uh, three former DP lawmakers, sort of part of the the principles and common sense, or a.k.a the anti-Ijemyang faction that kind of swayed away uh, of the four, only three of them left the party, formed the party themselves. Well, they decided to merge together mm-hmm. and join hand in hand, create this new party on Sunday. Uh, Hannah, uh, tell us more about this. Sure. Now, the new future party led by former Democratic Party leader Inagyan and the Grand Future Coalition Party, founded by a group of ex-DP lawmakers, including Lee Won-nook, Kim Jong-min, and Jong Chun, declared that that they would merge into a new single party on Sunday. Now, given that the merger of Lee Junsuk's new reform party and independent lawmaker Yang Hyangja's Hope of Korea party was announced earlier, at least mid-sized tents were set up among the opposing parties. Now, as the integration of such new parties has occurred on individual levels, competition will only get fiercer for a leading position among the new parties. Now, Grand Future Coalition Party co-leader Park Won-suk in New Future Party spokesperson Shin Kyung-min held a press conference at the National Assembly that the two parties agreed to unite to fight against the established, achieve political innovation, and ensure social reform and transformation for the future, according to the public's expectations. Now, the tentatively named Future Reform Party will hold an inauguration ceremony to complete the procedures next Sunday. Meanwhile, there are still obstacles to discussions over a big tent. Now, on the same same day, new reform parties Lee Jun-sok showed discontent with the tentative name of the future reform party on Facebook. He wrote that they tried to borrow the name of this Chinese restaurant, which is referring to the new reform party, which has just opened recently because it has increasingly gained fame. He also added that uh, shame on free riders on the subway whatsoever. And in response, former DP leader Lee Nagyun wrote on Facebook that the party is tentatively named Future Reform Party, but we will determine an official name based on a public naming contest later. It's messed up. Borrow the name of this Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. So basically uh, saying that, well, you know that we're very popular right now mm-hmm. and uh, you're just kind of piggybacking on our name mm. and uh, kind of tweaking up a bit, which is kind of like, you know, you've heard about like uh, a famous uh, tonkatsu place, right? Like in the, <laughs> the Namsan area, everyone calls them the mm-hmm. the original. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is there was actually a, a big controversy about a certain restaurant that basically t- took almost the same design of the logo and the same name and started selling their products. And I think that's... This is what Lee Jun-suk is saying. Uh, speaking of Lee Jun-suk, uh, he is, of course, uh, 
the former PPP law, uh, chief, and now the chief of the Reform Party. Uh, we talked about uh, just last week uh, that he and Hope of Korea Party Yang Yang Ja chief, uh, they decided they were going to merge their parties together. And uh, we got, I, I like, the, the big question was if, if these two parties merge, right? Like, what are you going to call them and what's going to happen, right? And also, who's going to be the chairman? Who's going to be doing what? Well, we got a clarification of this. And so let's get more on this, Minji. Sure. So today, Kim Chul-gun, the Secretary General of the Reform Party, and Yoon Mi-hae, spokesperson for the Hope of Korea, announced a significant agreement at a press conference held at the National Assembly's Communication Center on, on today. The two parties have agreed to retain the name Reform Party after their merger, but plan to change it to Hope of Korea following the upcoming April 10th general election. Now, both parties express unity for the progress of Korea's political landscape and the pursuit of a brighter future. The agreement is set to be finalized on January 31st, pending approval processes within each party. The merger will take the form of party-to-party -party integration, resulting in the establishment of the Reform Party with the slogan, Hope of Korea. Now, until the general election, the unified party will operate under the name Reform Party, and post the general election, it will undergo a renaming process to become Hope of Korea. Lee Jun-seok of the Reform Party will lead as the party leader, and Yang Hyang-ja of the Hope of Korea, currently the only active lawmaker, will serve as a parliamentary leader. Now, the Supreme Committee will consist of two members from each party, including the leader with an equal number of nominations. The Secretary General will be nominated by the Reform Party and the Vice Secretary General by the Hope of Korea. Now, to ensure a smooth transition, the Constitution and policies will be revised, giving priority to the Hope of Korea's platform and policies, and meanwhile, party constitution will be amended based on the existing Reform Party Constitution. So a Congress is scheduled to be held within 60 days after the April 10th general, general election. Yeah, so simply put, what's going to happen now is this, this merged party is going to be called the Reform Party, right? But their slogan is going to be Hope of Korea, which is the party name of uh, Yang yang mm -hmm. party, right? Then she's going to be the floor leader, whereas Lee Jun-suk is going to be the chief. Uh, interesting stuff. You know, Lee Jun-suk was kind of uh, talking about piggybacking on the names and stuff like that. From what I understand, uh, before they merged, uh, the reform parties, they wanted their color. Because, you know, each party has a color, right? They wanted orange. But the Hope of Korea party already had orange. And apparently, like, you know, Lee Jun-suk had asked Yang yang hey, can, can I? Can, can we use orange too? But, you know, it doesn't <laughs> matter anymore. They, they merged together. Uh, but you can kind of tell which these new parties are kind of targeting, which voters they're targeting right now. Because Lee Jun-suk has been probably the most vocal out of all of the new party sort of chiefs, right? Because mm -hmm. he's targeting the young voters. Why? Because as we mentioned, he's been talking about the quote-unquote free riders, right, mm -hmm. of the, the, the public transport and saying that elderlies should get a certain amount they can use per month instead of unlimited free rides, mm. which is leading to a, a, a deficit amongst the, the trans, uh, like for example, like Seoul Metro is always facing uh, uh, huge, deficits. huge deficits, right? And so he's targeting young people. And mm. I think he also came out earlier today talking about, uh, I guess, credentials that you would need, prerequisites women would need if they want to be police officers or firefighters. Mm. He said that any women that wants to become police women or uh, fire firefighters, they, they have to serve men, men or military service. And so 
he's now targeting, <laughs> trying to target the, the male voters, right? The 2030s, because we've heard, we've we've learned that there's been a gender rift as well. And that's mm-hmm. what Lee Jun-suk was doing when he was helping the campaign for President Yoon sung yeol And it was very, very effective at this time. So you could kind of tell uh, who he, which voters he's targeting at this time. Uh, let's move on here. Police who are investigating the attack on PPP lawmaker Pei Jin are focusing on determining the motive behind the attack. Uh, Pei, who was released from the hospital on Sunday, called for a strict legal measure, uh, saying that this should never happen to anyone. Hannah, let's get more on this. Okay, now, uh, the teenage suspect who attacked Pei Jin is currently hospitalized in a closed ward at a hospital in Seoul. Now, the legal emergency hospitali- uh, hospitalization period ends on the 30th, but it looks like it will be converted to a protective hospitalization with no discharge. As the suspect is a minor and it claims to be suffered from uh, depression, the police plan to continue the investigation at the hospital with the consent of his guardian. Now, in particular, since he is being managed in a closed ward, the police are focusing on identifying the motive of the crime through physical evidence, such as the suspect's cell phone and social media records and statements from those around him. Now, to this end, the police have strengthened their investigative capabilities by including the Cybercrime Investigation Unit of the Seoul Metropolitan Police Department. And determining the veracity of the suspect's statements is key to this investigation, especially as the suspect claimed in the initial interrogation that he accidentally committed the crime while waiting to meet a celebrity. However, law enforcement plans to conduct further face-to-face interviews with the suspect and consider applying for an arrest warrant at a later date taking into account the suspect's mental condition. In the meantime, they have raided the suspect's residence in Daejeon Gangnam-gu, Seoul to seek for more evidence. The PPP lawmaker Peonjin was discharged from Suncheonyang University Hospital yesterday, and meanwhile, the National Assembly held a meeting on Monday today to receive a report from National Police Chief Yoon Hee-gun on measures to protect the safety of politicians and discuss ways to prevent recurrence in the wake of a series of raids on politicians ahead of the April general election. Yeah, I think for like the longest time, a lot of people are saying, I mean, come on, like it's very, very dangerous. These politicians are very vulnerable, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, during the election campaign times, they're going to these markets and so forth. They're shaking hands with all these people. And who knows what, you know, deranged person might want to attack them. And, uh, you know, they're not really protected. But again, the big debate over this particular uh, teenage suspect is whether or not it was politically motivated Mm -hmm. is what it is. Because I I know that the attacker for uh, DP leader Lee Jae-myung uh, the prosecution is already uh, arrested and indicted him over charge of attempted murder plus plus for uh, violating the public election law, I believe, because it was politically motivated. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing with this 15-year-old is they're trying to figure out if it was politically motivated because they were saying some of the reports were saying that they had uh, he had sent some pictures of himself at like a. Uh, uh, DP leader Lee Jae Myung's like political rallies and events that he was there, and then took a picture and like gave it away to like sent it over to like a chat room filled with his uh, classmates. And so, this is the big thing here. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, in the meantime, let's go move on to some world news. UN Security Council set to discuss the International Court of Justice's interim order regarding uh, regarding Israel and its actions in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Minja, tell us about the details of this. 
Sure, so next week, the UN Security Council is scheduled to convene and address the International Court of Justice's interim order, which mandates Israel to prevent genocide in the Gaza Strip. Now, genocide, defined as the deliberate and systematic extermination of an ethnic, racial, or religious group, is a grave charge that has stirred international attention. Now, Algeria's foreign ministry has highlighted the significance of the Security Council's meeting on the 31st, emphasizing that it could potentially make the ICJ's interim order against Israel illegally legally binding. Now, back in June, the ICJ has issued an order directing Israel to take all necessary measures to prevent acts of genocide against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and enhance relief efforts for the civilians. Now, the court recognized Palestinians in Gaza as a protected group under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which was adopted in 1948. However, it's essential to note that the ICJ did not make rulings on the ceasefire order and the Israel's genocide charges. Now, the decision prompted strong reactions from Israel, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu dismissing the charges of the genocide. He reiterated Israel's commitment to defending the country and its people within the bounds of international law. Now, the International Court of Justice, established by the UN Charter in 1945, serves as a UN judicial arm. While its decisions are legally binding, the ICJ lacks the authority to enforce them. As the Security Council prepares to address this critical matter, the international community watches closely for a potential of development. Yeah, I mean, so you, you can say it's legally binding, but if you don't have the power to enforce it, then what good does it do? Right. And so, I mean, we talked about this briefly when we were saying that uh, the ICJ was going to look into uh, the matter and try to call for an emergency measure on uh, the ceasefire there. And uh, we also looked into what, I guess, what makes something a genocide, according to the U.N. Charter. And Mm -hmm. I did review the laws there. And uh, I mean, say what you want. Some of the things that have been done in Gaza falls into that category. But uh, if it's not can't enforce it uh, doesn't seem like it's going to help whatsoever because Israel is seems like uh, they are playing by their own rules and even ignoring uh, maybe some of the uh, the requests from its closest ally in the United States. Uh, in the uh, in the meantime, uh, we got some more conflict in the Middle East here. U.S. forces uh, being killed, also dozens injured after a drone struck U.S. forces stationed in northeastern Jordan. This is near the uh, Syrian border on Sunday. Washington, including President Joe Biden, blamed the attack on Iran-backed groups for the deadly attack. Hannah, let's get more on this. Sure. Now, U.S. officials say three U.S. servicemen were killed after an unmanned aerial drone launched an attack against U.S. forces stationed in northeastern Jordan near the Syrian border. During the attack, dozens of others were injured, with many being evaluated for possible traumatic brain injury. Now, an umbrella organization for hardline Iran-backed militant groups, the Islamic resistance in Iraq, claimed responsibility for the attack. According to U.S. President Joe Biden, Washington 
Washington is still gathering information on the attack, but said that it was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq, but of course Iran denied all suspicions. In a statement released by the White House, Biden vowed to carry on fighting against terrorism and said the U.S. would hold all those involved responsible. Since the outbreak of war in Gaza on October 7th last year, U.S. forces have come under attack more than 150 times by Iran-backed groups in the Middle East, leading to at least 70 injuries prior to Sunday's attack. Meanwhile, the uh, Israeli Prime Minister's office said on Sunday that a four-way meeting between the U.S., Israel, Qatar and Egypt took place in Europe to discuss a potential deal to release all Israeli hostages held by Hamas in exchange for a two-month-long ceasefire. The meeting was later confirmed to have been held in Paris and was described by the Prime Minister's office as being constructive. And according to U.S. officials speaking to the Associated Press on Saturday, the hostage deal would be carried out in two phases. In the first phase, fighting would stop to allow the remaining women, elderly, and wounded hostages to be released by the militant group. Israel and Hamas would then work out details during the first 30 days of the pause for the second phase, where Israeli soldiers and civilian civilian men would be released. Israel said that there are 132 hostages remaining in captivity, including two children. See, the problem with this right now, again, uh, they made a really big deal out of this and uh, the fact that uh, Israel has come out saying that this meeting that took place in Paris was very constructive, meaning that they're going to you know, agree to it is what they're saying. But look at the parties that are involved with this. You're talking about the United States, mm-hmm. Israel, Qatar, and Egypt. <clears throat> Hamas is not mixed into this negotiation talks, right? And so we've only heard what Israel kind of wants out of this. And what they want is all 132 hostages to be released. And granted, we do hope that the hostages are released uh, sometime soon. But Hamas knows that once there is some sort of a release of all the 132 hostages that Israel will not have, well, Hamas will have no, I hate to call it a leverage, Mm. all right? But there's going to be nothing that's going to hold Israel back from just completely bombarding the Gaza Strip and just completely trying to wipe out Hamas. Now, mind you, probably wiping out Hamas would not be a bad thing. But when we're talking about a large number of civilian deaths that come with the bombardment of trying to get rid of the Hamas, it's a big issue. And so I think what the Hamas are basically wanting is some sort of guarantee that, uh, you know, I guess they're going to be protected. And they also want uh, the Palestinian state, I believe, uh, to uh, take complete control of uh, Gaza once it's back. But Israel has been kind of firm on the fact that they're going to have some sort of military presence within Gaza uh, even after this uh, conflict is done and over with. So even if there is this meeting between the four sides, because the Hamas is not involved with this, uh, I don't think there's. it's going to be easy for them to be able to get some sort of... Uh, Uh, I guess, agreement in place here. But uh, nevertheless, guys, thank you very much for your reports today. As always, stay safe, and uh, we'll see you guys again. Thank Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.